Matthew chapter 5, we'll read verses 1 through 10 together. Hear the word of the Lord. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. O Lord, your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. We ask this morning that you would give us the grace to receive your truth and faith and love and the strength to follow you on the path that you have set before us. We pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Well, we've slowed down our pace a little bit and um, spent a little extra time looking at the Beatitudes. You'll remember just by way of context, Jesus is painting a beautiful portrait, a beautiful picture of what it looks like to be one of his disciples. And we've talked about Matthew's uh, literary technique here, theological technique, and going to at great lengths demonstrate that Jesus identifies with those whom he came to save, sinners in general, which includes all of us, and Israel in particular, and how Jesus' footsteps in chapters 1 through 4 are in so many ways retracing the footsteps of Israel in the Old Testament, particularly the Exodus, uh, showing multiple ways that he identifies with them. And then this culminates here uh, most recently at Mount Sinai, which is in Matthew's account, the equivalent, I'm sorry, the, the Sermon on the Mount, which is in Matthew's account, the equivalent of Mount Sinai. You remember when the Israelites came out of Egypt, they went to Mount Sinai. Moses, the great prophet, gives them the law, which you could summarize as this is what it looks like to be a citizen of the kingdom. Jesus comes out of Egypt, goes through the temptation, comes to uh, the mountaintop. He is the great Moses, the great prophet that Moses foretold. He also delivers a law, so to speak. And the Beatitudes, Matthew's account gives us eight of them are the equivalent of what it looks like to be in the kingdom. They are the opposite of self-reliance. They are the opposite of self-assertiveness. They are the opposite of self-indulgence. They are the opposite of of any form of self-salvation, self-justification that this world has to offer and that our hearts are so inclined toward. But instead, they they focus on the internal. What does a disciple of Jesus look like? Well, internally, the disciple of Jesus is poor in spirit. The disciple of Jesus internally mourns their sin. That's the second beatitude. The disciple of Jesus is meek or gentle from the inside out. The disciple of Jesus hungers and thirsts for righteousness. These are internal qualities that don't come naturally from us. They're not a checklist of prerequisites that we have to um, 
check off like their entrance requirements. If you do this, 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 and this, then you gain entrance into the kingdom. It's the exact opposite of that. It, it, it leads with you are blessed, not because of anything internally in you. You are blessed because by God's grace, you don't deserve it, but you've been brought into this kingdom and as a citizen of this kingdom, this is the kind of fruit that is going to flow out of your heart. You can't make yourself like that from the inside out. You can only come with the hand of a beggar, admitting you don't have it, admitting you are broken, admitting that you are poor, impoverished in spirit. And the Holy Spirit because of the work of Christ, applies that to the heart of disciples. They're matters of the heart. In fact, looking at these, I, I kind of see at least loosely, I don't know how intentional this is, I don't want to press it too hard, but there does seem to be even a parallel to the commandments. If you think of the first four Beatitudes as primarily how we relate to God, and then they kind of naturally flow into how we relate to others. Merciful, peacemaking. How do we act when we're persecuted? Just like the first table of the law from Mount Sinai deals with how do we relate to God? And then it moves into how does that naturally affect our relationships with others? Well, we've looked at the first uh, four, five. And this morning, I want to look at the pure in heart, verse 8. And the blessed are the peacemakers, verse 9. And then, Lord willing, next week we'll wrap up the series on the Beatitudes and move on. First of all, the pure in heart, verse 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. What does it mean to be pure in heart? Well, in the Bible, there are two major senses in which this idea is used. And just briefly, the first sense is this. And, you, and this comes through in, in his qualifier here when he says in heart. And it's all, all different kinds of purities you can discuss. But Jesus qualifies this very carefully. He says pure in heart. And this first idea of biblical purity has to do with inner moral holiness. That, that is key. I think that's key to the gospel. That's key to the theology of Jesus. That's key to these beatitudes. The focus is on the inner moral purity of a person as opposed to or in contrast with the external piety that we as human beings seem to be so good at. We're very good at putting it together on the outside. Thing is, Jesus is primarily concerned with what's going on on the inside. What is the core of the person? That's the heart. The heart in the Bible, and he mentions the heart here in verse 8, that's, that's the center of your personality. That, that's the mind, the will, the emotions. You could talk about the, the outer man. The outer man's wasting away. The inner man is what's left when you what's left when you shuck it down to the cob. Who, who am I essentially as a human being? It's it's who I am. It's my heart. It's all the elements that play into my personality. It's all those things going on in the, the deep private recesses of my mind and my heart that I know better 
about myself than you know about me, but I don't know even those inner recesses nearly as well as he knows about me. But you get the idea. This is the inner being. This is what God cares about the most. And this is why I'm quite sure as you read through the Old Testament, and particularly the prophets, and I think especially of the prophets like Moses and Isaiah, Moses repeatedly calling the Israelites, circumcise your hearts. It's, it's easy to go through the outward ritual of cutting some flesh or the outward ritual of, of being washed at the baptismal font. And, and that's fine. That's great. That's a matter of obedience. But you understand that's external. The, the, the real issue is what's going on in here. When Moses says circumcise your hearts, he's saying don't get so caught up in the externals that you lose sight of the internal. The most important thing is what's going on in the heart. And the prophets repeatedly go after Israel when the problem is a mere external display of religion at the expense of an internal heartfelt devotion and allegiance to God. That, that's the contrast, I think, that Jesus has in mind here. And of course, you look at the Gospels and, and Jesus is on the Pharisees for this all the time. Uh, look, look at just one example in verse uh, chapter 23 of Matthew's own Gospel. Just, just one example. You're familiar with these type passages. Matthew 23, verse 25, when he's pronouncing these woes to the Pharisees. This, this is what really is the focus of Jesus when he's being critical of these religious elites. Woe to you, verse 25 of Matthew chapter 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. That's a perfect example of what we're talking about here. You wash the cup on the inside, but on the inside it's still gross. What's Jesus more concerned about? Outside, yeah, sure, it's secondary. Primarily, what's going on on the inside? You blind Pharisee, he says in verse 26, First, clean the inside of the cup and the plate. That's the primary focus, the inside. Then the outside also may be clean. You, the, the, the idea seems to be consistently. We need to change on the inside. That's God's primary concern. If you focus on the primary concern and you're changed from the inside, then the outside will begin to take care of itself. The, the, the natural flow of things will go from the inside out. And so the warning here to us, you know, the, the, for Moses it was circumcision. For us, it's, you know, the externals. Um, we can, it's very possible, friends, to come to church every Sunday. It's very possible to come to church every time the doors are open. It's very possible to be a, a baptized uh, person who attends church, you come to Sunday school, you come to VBS, you come to the catechism ministries, you come to the small groups, you come to the Bible studies, 
etc., etc., etc. You join the choir, you pray, you tithe, you serve people, you do all these right externals, all good, all great, all commendable. But you can do all of these externals and still be rotten on the inside. That was the problem with the Pharisees so often. That's the problem in every generation. Folks in church everywhere doing the right things externally, but their hearts are still filled with anger. Their hearts are still filled with malice. Their hearts are still filled with hatred. Their hearts are, are filled with pride or lust or judgmentalism or just go, go down the list. And of course, one of the great themes of the Bible is that God knows your heart. You're not going to hide it from it. You're not going to hide it. We're, we're all poor in spirit, to go back to the first beatitude. The ones that are blessed are the ones that get that. You can fight against this your whole life. I know plenty of people that do. They deny it. They excuse it. They think God's going to grade on a curve. They think, oh, I'm not that bad, I, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And you come up with the, the solution. But any solution that we come up with is, is just um, a waste of time. The point that Christ is making here is if you're a citizen of the kingdom, if you're a follower of Christ, there is a purity that will come from the inside out. Christ did not just come into this world to correct bad habits. If all we need is an external washing and, and clean up some bad habits, some behavioral therapy, and hey, behavioral therapy has its place, absolutely. I'm a big fan in its proper context. But if that's all that Christ came to do, we're in a world of trouble. Christ did not just come to make sure we behave more mannerly on the outside. That is moralism. And it's not the gospel. Christ is saying his disciples are concerned with the inside. And there's a purity that comes from the depth of the soul that we are not responsible for that comes from the Holy Spirit. But there's a second sense in which you find the Bible referring to purity and in a somewhat similar fashion. If the first sense is internal versus external, the other sense is single-minded versus double-minded. The pure in heart are those who have a single-minded devotion to Christ. It's one who loves God and is not divided with one foot in the kingdom and one foot in this world. I know that's a related problem too. And you see that a lot in the Old Testament, New Testament. There's a passage in James, just real quickly, if you want to turn to James just for a moment where I think this really comes through. In James chapter 4, beginning in verse 4, James says this, You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? You can't serve both God and mammon, as Jesus was fond of saying. James is saying the same thing here. You can't be best friends with the world and best friends with Jesus. It just doesn't work that way. You can't serve two masters. He says, therefore, verse four, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. 
And then skip down to verse 8. He says, draw near to God. What's the solution? Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify. There's the same word. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. You see, that's a little bit different. The double-minded man is a man who pledges allegiance to God and pledges allegiance to the world. He's divided between those two camps. What does James say to do as the solution? Purify your heart. Purify your mind. Focus. Set your heart on one thing. Set your heart on God. No deception, no double-mindedness, no divided allegiance. Don't just be sure that your allegiance is not divided between Christ and the world, but that it is primarily focused on God. That is a hallmark of a disciple of Christ. I think that's what he's getting at, at the purity of heart here. And then he says in verse 9, Blessed are the peacemakers. That's another characteristic of a citizen of the kingdom of a disciple of Jesus Christ. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. How do we know if we're a peacemaker? Well, there's plenty of examples of this in Scripture too. If you look a little later in this same chapter, there's a classic one. I think kind of fleshes out this thought. If, if you look at chapter 5, verse 43, Jesus teaches a little later in the Sermon on the Mount. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven for he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. I think it's the same thought. How do you know if you're a peacemaker? Well, a hallmark of peacemaking is loving your enemies. Praying for your persecutors. He's indicating that peacemaking is all of the actions of love that we extend, word, thought, deed, in order to try to smooth enmity between us and others. And he says, here's the example. God does the same thing. He sends the sun and the rain, both on the righteous and on the wicked, both on the good and on the bad. He is, to a real degree, just indiscriminate in the love that he extends to others. In fact, he goes on here, says in verse 46, For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? In other words, friends, it's not that hard to be nice to somebody who's nice to you. What's difficult in life, and I know you all know what I'm talking about. What's difficult in life is hugging a porcupine. 
That's hard. There's nothing inviting about that. And he says, do not even the tax collectors do the same. Even a tax collector is going to be nice to somebody who treats him nicely. That's just kind of common human economy. Verse 47, and if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? There's nothing especially commendable about greeting your brother. There's nothing especially commendable about being nice to somebody who's nice to you. The proof of the pudding is how do you treat your enemies? How do you treat those who are at enmity with you? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. Those who are citizens of the kingdom are marked by reaching out and pursuing reconciliation. I love that example that he leaves here. Greeting, verse 47. Sometimes being a peacemaker just begins by looking at somebody and just saying good morning. Just saying hello. So maybe that are, there is so much enmity there that that's all that your enemy can tolerate. A greeting, just a simple greeting. But it could go a long way. It can. And of course, it's good to be reminded peace making is not always the same thing as peace achieving. You know, peace is a two-way street, at least. Sometimes there's many parties involved in peacemaking. We do the best we can. Uh, Paul says in Romans 12, 18, is if possible, as far as it depends on you, he gives two qualifiers here. If possible, as far as it depends on you, live peaceably toward others. That means it's not always possible. That means it always doesn't always depend on you, but you can still take the high road. You can still be the bigger person. You can still be the Christ-like person and at least work toward achieving peace as far as it depends on you. I, I really think a lot of times peacemaking is just a matter of keeping your mouth shut. Just, just leaving things alone. How often is peace disturbed by people... Disturbing the peace. Sticking their nose <laughs> where it doesn't belong. I, I don't know how many times with our kids growing up, we, we repeated it to them, just, just let go of it. Stay out of it. Stay in your lane. Don't start nothing. There won't be nothing is the idea. So often. We don't want to be troublemakers. The, tr the troublemaker is the one who's always disrupting things, always finding conflict, always finding division. There's, their spiritual gift seems to be hypercriticism. This is the opposite of that. Followers of Christ, meek, gentle followers of Christ, humble followers of Christ. They're known for working toward peace. And of course, it's not a peace that's at the expense of truth. And you see that, Lord willing, we'll see that next week as we get into this last one. I, I think it's very intentional that Jesus juxtaposes number seven, peacemakers, with number eight, those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. You can be a peacemaker. It's not the same thing as a peace achiever. You can be a peacemaker, a peace pursuer. But even, even the most Christ-like peace pursuer is still going to, beatitude number eight, suffer for righteousness' sake from time to time. We are to be seekers of peace, but not at the expense of truth. Martin Luther said, peace if possible, but the truth at any rate. There is a hierarchy. We are to be people of the truth first. Don't be like that mom 
who every time her child throws a temper tantrum, you stuff candy in their mouth. Yeah, it will shut them up for a little bit, but that's not peacemaking. That, that's appeasement making. That's a difference. That's not the same thing. Never peace at the expense of truth. Truth first. Never compromised. But those who pursue Jesus Christ will also pursue the goal of peace. And friends, so often, peacemaking is hard. So often, pursuing peace is uncomfortable. And so often, pursuing peace is very, very costly. Jesus Christ is the ultimate example of what it cost at times to pursue peace. God the Father, as we come to the table, reminds you that he pursued peace at the immense cost of the death of his son. I'm going to ask the men to come forward and prepare the table. Friends, if you have come to recognize your poverty of spirit and you mourn over your sin and you hunger and thirst for righteousness and you have turned from that sin and you have placed your complete, single-minded, pure trust in Jesus Christ, this table is for you. Christ has prepared the banquet. He is the host. And Christ serves you his body and blood this morning by faith. Come to the table and find ease, refreshing, and strength for your week 